This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. In the post-war decades between the mid 1940s and 1970s, European countries, but also elsewhere, have seen a massive construction of multi-story housing settlements to address a housing shortage in cities and suburbs. Falling into disrepute in the 1960s and onwards, they've been reviled for fostering all sorts of social problems, for being in poor maintenance, for being ugly, wasting space, destroying a sense of urbanity. Large-scale efforts have demolished these forms of housing over the past decades, but plenty still remain. In this episode, we are going to hear primarily from experiences in Britain and Germany, with some comparisons to other Western European countries. My name is Markus Kipp. It's October 11, and I take part at the conference Adaptive Reuse, Strategies for Post-War Modernist Housing Settlements at the Frankfurt University of Applied Sciences that discussed ways to maintain, adapt, reuse and conserve these buildings. It was organized by the research lab led by architectural professor Maren Hanak, whom we are going to hear in the second part of this episode on current urban design debates and efforts to engage these post-war housing settlements. Starting off from a historical point of view, with a particular focus on Britain, we're going to hear from Miles Glendinning, whom I had the pleasure to meet at the conference. Okay, yes, yeah, so my name is Miles Glendinning. I'm a professor of architectural conservation at Edinburgh University in Scotland. I'm also head of something called the Scottish Centre for Conservation Studies, which is kind of like a sort of research and teaching department at Edinburgh University. Miles, could you please talk me through the public debate surrounding post-war housing settlements? In Britain, there's always been a bit of a tendency to, to have extreme polemical swings of opinion about the way the city should be organized and the things about, you know, density, uh, building type and, you know, huge swings in fashion. And accompanied by that is um, there's this tradition of what's called slum clearance in Britain. Slum clearance means in Britain that very large areas are simply not of, of, of existing um, 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 sort of urban fabric uh, are, are de were declared to be obsolete, and, um, and there's something wrong with them, and they and they're, they're uh, and they're simply knocked down in the huge quantities, and then replaced by something very very different, and then uh, quite usually because of the kind of polarized debates, very often like 20, 30 years later, generation later, the same thing happens again, um, and this is not so much the sort of thing that happened in in, in Germany, where um, you know typically like Uh, early 20th century condemnations of, of Mietzkazerne and all that kind of thing, the, rea the response to that would be to build new uh, Gartenstädte and, you know, the, somewhere else. But there wouldn't be the idea of just knocking down very large amounts of them. And that was really what um, was done by the, at the expense of the British taxpayer between 1942 and 45 in Germany. And then in, in, in cities in Britain was done by the, again, um, but rather later, but by the municipal authorities themselves. So that's the first thing. There's always been this tradition about um, a very sort of strong fluctuations, and, and multi-story flats have fallen into that um, kind of victim to that um, from about the mid-1960s, late 1960s in England in particular, where there's always been a bit of a predisposition as well about um, that uh, the normal way to build is, is little separate terrace houses. That doesn't apply to Scotland, where tenement building is a norm. But from the uh, late, uh, late 60s in England, there was a huge swing against multi-story flats, um, and 
and um, uh, into the 70s and the 80s, they were really condemned as being very, very bad. And that was by general, a general public discourse, uh, helped also by a very strong, very violent tradition of architecture, uh, well, of architectural journalism or journalism about the built environment and. Um, um, now, also linked with that was the fact that public housing in Britain, unlike Germany with the Gemeinnützig tradition and so on in Britain, public housing has always been built, it's called council housing, it's been built directly by, by and owned by municipal authorities, and it's um, traditionally been um, the, the subject, therefore, of very, very forceful um, local political debates. I mean, lo public housing has been seen as part, an extension of local political controversy. And so, again, you get this uh, an intense um, fluctuation that if one party comes into power, another party goes out, then, then it's just chuck overboard the policies of there. And um, that included, um, you know, council housing. Um, so you then got from the 1980s a big swing away from council housing towards privatisation of council housing. In Britain, what happened was that there was the so-called right-to-buy um, programme under which huge amounts of public housing was just simply sold off piecemeal to its occupants, which created a sort of splitting up, residualization of the housing stock and so on. Again, multi-storey flats fell victim to that. So that's all the kind of um, general urbanist um, de extremist debate in, in, in Britain in which multi-story flats fell, fell victim to. Then there's the Dinkmartflager uh, um, situation. That's a different debate. Um, and again, one which has, an, unlike Germany, where Dinkmartflager is, is seen as something that's very much a province of experts, um, academics uh, and uh, also um, sort of Beamter type thing of people who are officials in the London's all this kind of stuff doesn't exist in Britain at all um, the government is involved a little bit in, in, in conservation, a central government, but on the whole the, the, the big um, uh, emphasis is, is done by kind of voluntary groups um, uh, preservation societies all that kind of thing and um, um, uh, that can have a disadvantage when it comes to slightly, sometimes rather half-baked debates that are driven by polemic and so on rather than anchored by the kind of the more weighty kind of approach in, in Germany and France and so on. But it can harness a lot of public enthusiasm. Um, and um, just as in the 1950s and 60s, that fueled a great turnaround in opinion about 19th century architecture, which previously hated, everybody wanted it got rid of, should knock it all down, you know, the usual thing, knocking down areas, knocking down the slums, and so on. That then turned round, and um, and then uh, there was something called the Victorian Society, and there was, and there was 19th century architecture suddenly became very romantic, and so on. So, and associated with that phase was then a start of con condemnation of modernist architecture. That's very bad, you should start knocking it all down. Um, and but then um, since about the 1990s and then accelerating since about two. 2000 to the last 10 or 15 years, there's then been a new phase of enthusiasm in, about Dingmanflager, which is that um, uh, um, modernist architecture, post-war architecture, suddenly fashionable among conservation people um, not the, that's still detached from the general public, you know, to some extent. Um, but um, and th those debates, it's sort of semi-detached from it, um, and and uh, you get like enthusiast groups about brutalism that suddenly become very very fashionable. Concrete architecture that was previously the most hated thing now has become the most fashionable thing among young, trendy kind of um, uh, um, volu volunteer um, conservation people. Generally, only picking out ones by kind of elite people, the blocks designed by Sir Dennis Lasden or something like that, and the normal. 
the normal everyday ones, heritage people are quite happy to just see them continuing to disappear and continuing to be stigmatized. So a, a very sort of variegated picture. So there's really all of that that been bubbling away in heritage. There's the um, swinging, there's the issue of the public um, debates about, uh, uh, the wider debates about knocking down of um, obsolete housing. Now what's then burst into that as a third um, um, complicating factor is the influence of the combined um, climate change um, constraints and the Grenfell Tower fire in London. Um, And those have interacted. Partly the reason for the Grenfell Tower fire was a a massive uh, move towards um, recladding of multi-storey blocks to make them more... uh, because in general post-war housing is very energy inefficient. And this has been done in England, not in Scotland, in England in a very, very cheap and rather sort of um, dangerous way by sticking inflammable panels onto the outside of quite a lot of blocks with the effect, the predictable effect, one of them um, ca- catches fire and, and you, know, you start then uh, allowing um, a, a fire to get in, uh, spread up the uh, building from the outside and get into it from the outside, then obviously you have a death trap, whereas a building you know, previously was designed to stop that altogether. Um, um, that has... has um, reanimated the public um, di- the, the violent public discourse against tower blocks again just when it seemed to be generally simmering down and people beginning to start coming back towards them in all these renewal efforts there's of course always uh, also money to be made um, mm. by by developers what what role do you think uh, these kind of real estate development mm. interests play in this well, I think you need within England, and again, Scotland is slightly semi-detached from this, you need to divide the areas where demolitions are happening into two categories. One of them is the areas of low housing demand, and one of them is the areas of high housing demand. So the areas of high housing demand is basically the southeast of England and, and London. Well, there's huge pressure for, um, although the the, the um, in land value speculation, property speculation has has uh, leveled off recently, but there has been huge speculation, huge pressure. Um, and and therefore, um, on any um, like a kind of redu- uh, uh, social housing site that, that um, um, the nefarious interests see that they could get their hands on and um, um, have a regeneration project, which then kind of you know releases some some of it to um, gentrification or, or, or high value flats. You know, all, there's all that. It's all a question about identifying places that do have a high potential value, um, getting rid of the people from them, um, shipping them out to somewhere. Uh, remote or something and then building um, um, sort of expensive flats on the side and that's obviously becoming increasingly controversial you know now, in other parts of, of England, the kind of uh, the, the kind of maybe some of the areas that voted for Brexit, these sort of like these uh, sort of um, uh, down, uh, down um, poor areas, um, areas of low housing demand, these are much more like um, the areas in East Germany that had Umbar Ost, but but on a kind of much more incremental thing. These are areas where where the population is dropping rather than increasing. Um, but largely driven because because of the kind of free property thing. There, um, it's really ha- housing estates that d- d- there's no demand for the sites anyway. And um, there, the thing is just really, again, similar to Umbaos, it's sort of like just knock them down and leave the sites vacant. Um, it's not really done in a strategy, un- unlike in places like, like Halle Neustadt or something. You know, it tends sometimes to be rather random. It's sort of, here's an estate, get rid of it. Um, another one, get rid of it. And, um, and, and so you have kind of the 
uh, surviving ones just sticking up in a rather odd and random way. Out of the experience of building uh, post-war social housing, mass housing, uh, particularly now looking at uh, the experience in, in, in Western Europe, but what what would you say can we learn f uh, for, from this for today? Well, I think um, I think in, in Britain, um, <clears throat> um, you know, going back to that initially, I think there should be a little less of the, the addiction to the extre the extremes because that can be pretty wasteful. You know, build this, knock it down, build this, knock it down, all that. Um, so, um, and I, I also think that in Britain there are now inevitably calls, you know, under this uh, by left-wing people for a revival of council housing. And I would say, you know, be very careful about that because it was something that was very easy for, uh, because it was controlled by local local government. It was very easy for a hostile central government to dismantle under the right to buy. And it'd be, it'd be much more, much better to go for something like Gemeinnützig set up, or in in, in France, what is called the HLM, which is a kind of public uh, a social housing that's at one removed from the state. So that's a, no. But obviously in 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 West in, in in Europe, well, you know the places that seem to made a success of it are these places, in, um, and it's a stereotypical places of you know Scandinavia and the Netherlands and so on that have a. a um, uh, that don't go in for <clears throat> very strong involvement, direct involvement by the state uh, in, in direct provision of housing, which seems to lead to these extreme solutions and kind of very, you know, extravagant fluctuations. Um, ones that go in for policy continuity and I mean you know, you know West Germany has been a good example of that of having the, the Gemeinnützig system which I obviously to some extent it was it was dismantled a bit in the 1980s but it's still it's still basically there um, and it had the problem of Neue Heimat and which is a sort of bit of the kind of elephant in the room but that's obviously disappeared now um, um, so you know the, the the systems that seem to work best are the ones that are just consistent that follow a consistent policy that don't go for a very highly politicized thing and they're, and they're not and not linked to political instability in 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 some sort of way um I personally don't feel that the built forms are that important, really, in, in, in the success of, you know, the, uh, contrary to the architectural people who say, oh, it's vital that they should be designed in this way or that way. And, you know, uh, you know, because you can get identical built forms that have very different um, outcomes in terms of the, it would say, success or but what the social condition of them or economic condition, you know. Um, so... I, I think it's really more a matter of the kind of consistent policies and avoiding ex extravagant policy making and um, uh, particularly avoiding residualization of um, politically driven residualization um, commodification. Keep commodification at bay, as as they managed to do in many Scandinavian in, in some of the Scandinavian countries. But obviously, maybe these are not um, uh, conditions that will be easy easily replicable elsewhere, and it's not really relevant to countries in the global south, and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, well, it can't suit everybody, you know. But. You know. My name is Marin. I work at the Frankfurt University of Applied Sciences, where I teach um, urban design. And I also have with a few colleagues something called the 
post-war housing research lab, which we started um, in the autumn of last year. Could you briefly state what you think the qualities of these uh, these uh, settlements are? Well, first of all, I think one of the big qualities is that they had an idea about what, what society should be like, um, and they were not built with uh, the revenue as the main driver behind them, but with the idea of creating neighborhoods that would enable uh, an equal and... Um, democratic society rather than kind of making as much money as possible for a developer. And in a very practical way, I think that a lot of the flats that were built in these neighborhoods are very good. They are very efficient. They are very easy to use. And they allow people to um, lead a good life in the city. And then secondly, I think it's very good that they have a very dense mix of um, build-up areas and green areas. So the green areas are quite lush and today the green has grown and we have big trees and very, very nice greenery which people um, who live there really like and enjoy. And uh, we think it's fundamentally wrong to consider this greenery as building sites. Um, and in many cases where we have projects to densify these neighborhoods, um, the process is more or less you look where you can technically build something uh, and how much you can technically build and then you build as much as possible rather than thinking what might enhance the neighborhood, what does it really need, how can, um, how can it improve certain aspects that maybe are not as perfect as they could be. So taking a look at the uh, last couple of decades, uh, how would you say did the view on uh, this po post-war modern architecture um, and these uh, settlements change over time? Well, in the beginning they were very popular because people who moved there lived in um, housing from the 19th century. And at that time, housing from the 19th century was not something you liked to live in because it was not renovated as it is now. So you had very often no bathroom, no central heating. Uh, perhaps the loo was half a stair down. Um, no modern windows and all these things. So for many people, including my parents actually, it was a huge step forward to move from a 1910 house to a modern apartment in one of these settlements. Um, and I believe that what happened then in the 1960s and 70s, that these old neighborhoods were rediscovered by young people, students, uh, and also by architectural historians, and they, they fought to protect these neighborhoods, kind of made the new settlements the scapegoat, um, because it was very much like... Um, so these neighborhoods, these old neighborhoods, they are diverse, they are urban, they are, uh, allow a lot of different types of um, lifestyles, whilst these new neighborhoods are very much geared to the Fordistic mode of uh, production and kind of take that into private life. Whilst, um, w yeah, and, and, and these neighborhoods became kind of the, the, the anti-image of how people wanted to live. But that was something that very much came from the outside, and it was not something that people who lived there would uh, would say 
um, but rather people who wanted something else. And I think that this is a problem that we still have today because we tend to um, think that the city of the 19th century is all kinds of good things, socially inclusive, um, sustainable because you have short ways, you can walk everywhere, um, and all the rest of it. There's no evidence to support that, uh, actually, because uh, you might live in a 19th century neighborhood and still uh, move about a lot, work somewhere else, go on holidays a lot. But how do these settlements fit into today's society? What kind of adaptations need to be made? We really, we do see the need to work on these neighbors. There are shortcomings. For example, there are hardly any uh, larger flats. Most of the flats are one-bedroom or two-bedroom flats. Because of that time, um, when you had two kids, you lived in a two-bedroom flat. And today, that's not really how things uh, work anymore. We don't have enough homes for the elderly. We don't perhaps have enough um, barrier-free homes. There Uh, the way uh, social life works has changed. Churches are not that important anymore. So we have a lot of churches in these areas and we need to think about what to do with them. Um, and I do think that, of course, after 50 years, there need adaptions to be made. But one thing that we really care about is how these adaptions can be made in a way that is sympathetic to these neighborhoods and that doesn't work against them. In very many cases, you see that the, the aim is not to make it a better neighborhood, but to actually to just kind of squeeze in as many um, homes as possible or sell off land for redevelopment, for, for shopping or something. And then you can't, you, you don't really have uh, the control anymore about what, what's happening. And we, th that's one thing that we think is really, really important, that if you work with these neighbors, you have to work with them and not against them. And the third thing is that we really believe that it's a very important part of our built heritage. Huh? So uh, there was a very specific time after World War II when society thought about how, what, what is a democratic society, how do we want to live, how do we want to build cities, and then they built these neighborhoods. And hardly any of them are protected. So there's really a danger that we lose every, every single one. And in 100 years' time, we maybe can read about what these neighborhoods were like, but we can't see them anymore. And that, that's also something we think is very important. And it's a, it's a really difficult task because they're so vast. And how can you protect something that is maybe 40 hectares or a big neighborhoods, 160, 200? How can you deal with that in the sense of conservation um, when we all agree that the architecture itself is not like the architecture of a church or something? It's, it's quite generic. Um, and however, still there is a, something that... that um, That, that wouldn't work without the architecture being as it is. And so we try to develop concepts for that, and that's, we, we do this conference, Adaptive Reuse, which is also about the, the question, how can we protect these neighborhoods and how can we deal with them in the future? Considering the, the current housing crisis, the idea of densifying those those neighborhoods seems to be natural, uh, consequential, um, since you uh, want to protect these, these qualities also of the free spaces. How, how, how do you engage those arguments? Um, one thing I 
that needs to be look at, looked at is that uh, the density of people. Because in these neighbors, people often live quite dense, uh, densely packed, uh, and they don't use... I don't know what, what the average is, 40 square meters per person or something. So they live quite densely together. Uh, and if you live with, say, three kids on 80 square meters, obviously the kids are more outside and they need more of that space. Um, secondly, they're, they're, they are not that undense. They're quite dense. Um, Com depends on what you compare them to. If you compare them to something like an inner city neighborhood, of course they're not dense. But if you compare them to uh, a neighborhood with single family homes, they're very dense. So the question is, what do you compare them with? And is it what, what I, I'm, I'm kind of worried about is that we start densifying cities in areas where the people live that have relatively little money, that really need that open space because their flats are relatively small um, and um, that we, on, on the other hand, build new neighborhoods like in Frankfurt-Riedberg that, that have less density than the neighborhoods from the 1960s. And then I asked myself, why don't we build the neighborhoods that we built anew in a denser way? And the question is, of course, because people think, well, if it's too dense, it's dangerous, it's going to create problems, we don't want all these new people next to us, blah, blah, blah. So rather than densifying these neighbors, because it seems to be so easy, I think one should rather think about densifying the neighborhoods that are not, have not yet been built, rather than making compromises with existing um, residents and say, okay, okay, we're not going to build four stories, we're only going to build three stories, we're going to build row houses, we're going to build semis, blah, because then you have a better social structure and the rest of it. So, in fact, what we do is we have these neighborhoods that contain most of the social housing we have, and rather than building new social housing where we don't have a lot of it, we stick more in there. Uh, so we would kind of contribute to segregating social housing. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Secondly, we have a lot of relatively central um, areas with single-family detached homes. And nobody wants to touch those because it's complicated, because people will be furious, because politicians want to be re-elected. And I think it's actually, it's not okay to ask people in these areas that have, that have, to deal with the stigmatization anyway, they have a higher percentage of poor people to deal with, blah, blah. So ask them to also digest new residents uh, in their neighborhoods, and possibly not even in a way that's well done. Uh, and those people that are well off and can afford a single family home, we just leave alone. I think that's fundamentally wrong. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.